0: So the task that I uh, set for myself today in thinking about what to talk about tonight was since some people are leaving tomorrow, and many people are staying, I thought to myself, what would be the best possible teaching suitable for people who are going home, and also for people who are continuing to practice? and. The first thing I thought of was, maybe that's really not a a valid discrimination because everyone is going home, and in a certain sense, we're all always going home. That's actually what we're doing in this practice. We're going home to the peace that we either know or uh, intuit, could be our experience, otherwise we wouldn't be here. And it isn't as if our journey home will not continue as we go home, just as the journey home will continue for those who don't leave this place tomorrow. But then I thought that probably the teaching best suitable for people in either locations while going home is to hear some of the teachings of the Buddha, it's very satisfying and for me very consoling to listen again and again and again to what the Buddha taught. When I say to myself I take refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, when I say I take refuge in the Dharma, I take such comfort for the fact in the fact that for two and a half millennia People have used these very same instructions to wake up, to come home, to their true nature, to the possibility of a peaceful heart. I don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's out there. There are instruction manuals. In fact, when I think of those precepts taking refuge in the the Buddha and the dharma and the sangha. And I, I often think, I often say actually to teaching colleagues when we talk about, should we take them in the beginning, should we take them in the end, how frequently should we do them? And I have a sense that you can't do them too much, really, or too often. It's so inspiring for me to think that the Buddha was a person, just like we are, and that waking up is a possibility. And that the Dharma has been set out for us to use and work with. And that we have a community of friends, those that we see here in this room, those that we know that are our friends on the journey, our kin and our family and everyone we have in our close association that supports us in our work, we have the song of the names of whom we know, and all the people everywhere, waking up in this tradition and any tradition, that knows that there's a journey and a path and a way home. So it's inspiring for me to think that refuges are really important to me. So starting with that as the text i take refuge in the buddha take refuge in the dharma take refuge in the sangha and then i wanted to start from a piece of uh, mary's teaching last night when she i'm sure you remember said that she had called ajnanara for some advice in advance of a particularly difficult time and he had thought for a while about what to say and he had a two-word advice. He said, don't suffer. That's a magnificent piece of advice. It is so filled with faith that that's a possibility. We could do that. We could have lives, real lives in the world with problems as lives are. And there's a possibility to do them Not without pain, but without suffering. That is so inspiring, so exciting. And then one more piece to begin with, and it was a question from last Saturday night's question and answer. You remember when we were picking out questions from the uh, question basket and taking turns answering them? And one of the questions that I picked out uh, was the question: Are there any fully realized beings at Spirit Rock? And uh, just as you laughed now, everyone laughed then, <laughs> and I laughed too. And I said, I don't think so. Um, and uh, the rest of the question was: Are there any realized beings in the in the world? Do I know any? And I really thought about it a lot since then, about what does it mean, fully realized. Um, uh, When I laughed about it and said, I don't think so here, if fully means never ever caught stuck in stories, never ever tripped up by greed or hatred and delusion. I don't know anybody here. But I meet people from time to time. I know people. I think of people with whom I share this journey. As along the journey being less stuck, less caught, less trapped. So if that question meant fully and forever, I don't know. But sometimes, and sometimes at least for a while, Quite free. I'd like to tell you a story because you remember I said I think there are probably lots of quite regular people in the world, ordinary people, people you wouldn't know from looking at them that they were quite free. A few years ago, um, my husband and I were in New York City and uh, we met, made a kind of a pilgrimage to Borough Park, it's part of Brooklyn, where we lived for the first year that we were married, and we uh, we went to see what 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 the neighborhood looked like, and uh, we came to the house where we had the apartment on the upstairs of a duplex, and uh, the neighborhood has changed. Uh, since we lived there, it was at that time and is now a Jewish neighborhood. There's lots of stores and that um, carry religious items and appropriate foodstuffs, and lots of synagogues and schools. And there were then. It's become a much more uh, traditionally ultra-orthodox community. So since that time. So actually in preparation for this trip I dressed myself quite modestly and covered my hair with a kerchief which is appropriate. And we came to the building where we used to live and I rang the bell for the upstairs apartment and right away there was a voice, woman's voice, said, hello. And uh, this is out of the little speaker that's downstairs. We lived upstairs. So a disembodied voice said, hello. And I said, hello. I lived here uh, 43 years ago, just after I was married in, this, in, in your apartment. And she said, would you like to come up? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I would. So she buzzed us in and we went up. And my husband and I stayed with her for an hour or an hour and a half. She made us tea. And uh, she showed us around the apartment. She was a woman uh, several years older than I am. And she told us a little, I asked her story, I asked her about herself. She showed us through the apartment back and forth. And the apartment was just really as I remembered it, except that the living room was lined with books, bookshelves of books that I recognized to be the kind of religious tomes that a a scholar lived there, turned out had lived there. When I lived there 43 years ago, we didn't have bookshelves, we had a television in that living room. (laughs) And uh, she showed us through the apartment, we sat down in the kitchen. And I could tell by the arrangement of the kitchen that uh she was very much more traditional in her um, uh, dietary observances. You can recognize that that ultra orthodox uh form of practice by the fact that there are two sinks and we had uh, we had an hour of tea together and uh, she said that her husband had died uh, three or four months before, not long before, and uh, that she really missed him a lot. And I said, uh, What did he die of? And she said, Well, he turned out that he had such and such a condition that um, had it been correctly diagnosed earlier, he probably would have lived, wasn't that old. She said, but she said that things happen, you know. There was no recrimination in her voice. Then we uh, looked at the pictures on her uh, wall right near the kitchen table, and she had pictures of her three sons and uh, their current families in different parts of the country. They don't live there now. And you can tell by, uh, I can tell by looking at how many children each family had, and how they were dressed, how traditionally orthodox or not, how progressive they were in their lifestyle. And all of them were different, and I noticed that. And she said, yes, this is my son so-and-so in Cincinnati with his family, and my son so-and-so, and and my son so-and-so. And she looked at me and was clear that I also saw that the lifestyles were different in all these people. And she said, everybody's different. (laughs) Then we had tea. And after a while I said... um, I, uh, uh, I asked about the people who lived downstairs, who had lived there when I'd been there. Whatever happened to Cynthia and Jack? She said, "Oh, they lived here for many years. She and her family apparently moved into my apartment just after my, I moved out of it. For there were no people in between." She said, uh, "Cynthia and Jack lived there for many years. Just a few years ago, left." So I inquired about Cynthia and Jack's children. That young when I was there, two little girls. And she said, oh yeah, they were great friends of her children. She said they played upstairs with her children all the time. She said they were not observant at all. You probably remember that. She said, you know, but they loved it that we were, and I, my children loved their children. Everybody's different. <laughs> I asked her at one point, I said, I noticed that you have a, um, a little bit of an accent were you not born in this country? I said, no, I was uh, born in Czechoslovakia. So I said, then you got out before 1939? And she said, no, we didn't. She said, uh, actually, we didn't. That we spent the war, we were interned in one of the camps in the war. And she said, uh, my, uh, my sister and my father and my mother and I, and my mother died there, said, but uh, My father survived and my sister was very, very sick when we were liberated. She had typhus and I needed to carry her out. She said, but you know, we came to the United States. My father, she said, just died a few years ago. My sister lives a few streets away from me. She married. She had a family. I married. I had a family. Want some more tea? In front of her was a box of uh, remedies, um, lots of vitamins and supplements, and uh, she had a tea and was portioning out her vitamins and supplements. And I looked at it. You know, she's a, an older woman in a traditional neighborhood. It didn't seem—it's not a neighborhood of new age shops and <laughs> health food stores. But here she is and she's got all her vitamins and supplements, and taking them out, measuring them as we sat together. And she said, you know, I uh, have a lot of faith and uh, you know, I take my medicines. I have some blood pressure problems and some heart problems, but I take my medicines. But you know, I read all those magazines about health and all that and alternative health and you have to keep up with things. You have to look at what's happening. You have to have an open mind about things. And then the last thing was she took us uh, as she took us out of the apartment we passed by one of the bedroom doors and the door was open and uh, I saw that uh, there was a treadmill in the <laughs> bedroom. And uh, she saw that I saw the treadmill and she said, uh, I walk on that a little bit every day. She said, I need to exercise because I want to stay alive. So uh, we were walking to the subway my husband and I, and uh, in the conversation she'd asked us where we lived, and uh, I told her I lived in California. I told her I was a psychologist. And on the way to the uh, subway my husband said, Is there any special reason you didn't tell her what you teach? And I I said, I didn't think I had anything to teach her. I was so taken with how not caught in her story she was. I was actually thrilled with how not caught in her story she was. I thought to myself, I noticed that she was not caught in her story because I look for that. I'm inspired by that. I know what it is to be caught and to suffer and so I recognize when people are not caught and aren't suffering and I'm thrilled by it. And I thought about the fact that I have a similar feeling about what it must mean if you understand about freedom from suffering and you meet someone who is free. I thought about the stories of... The Buddha, after his own enlightenment, meeting the five monks with whom he had practiced before he had left them and gone off to do his own practice by himself, and his meeting them again, there recognizing in seeing his radiance and his serenity and his clarity that he actually was free. him telling them what he had learned. This is what he told them. And the Buddha said, And I discovered that profound truth, so difficult to perceive, difficult to understand, tranquilizing and sublime, which is not to be gained by mere reasoning and visible only to the wise, that profound truth. The world, however, is given to pleasure, delighted with pleasure, enchanted with pleasure. Truly, such beings will hardly understand the law of conditionality, the dependent origination of everything. Yet there are beings whose eyes are only a little covered with dust. They will understand the truth. Think when you're ready to hear it, ready to see it, And he taught them the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, decay is suffering, death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Not to get what one desires is suffering. And the origin of suffering, he taught them, is craving, is thirst, craving in the mind. that condition in which the mind is held captive by what it thinks it needs to have. And he taught them the noble truth of the extinction of suffering. For it is a complete fading away and extinction of this craving. It's forsaking and abandonment, liberation and detachment from it. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion, This, indeed, is called nirvana. And he taught them about the noble truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering. That which we are practicing here, and will practice at home, and practice all the time. The path of right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action. Right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, which has no boundaries in terms of venue of practice. It's a practice for a life all the time. And he said, this is the middle path which the perfect one has discovered, which makes one both see and know, which leads to peace, to discernment, to enlightenment. What I particularly love is the line, for those with little dust, for those ready to hear. In uh, some of the classic stories of the Buddha's teaching, it says, and the Blessed One went here and sat down and taught, or he went there and sat down and taught, masses of people. And at the end of many of those stories of what he taught, it will say how many people were entirely liberated, were free, saw clearly the spotless immaculate vision of Dhamma arose in them and their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. I love that. That what we do is we make the heart less and less caught in clinging, and then the truth arises. Their minds were ready, they didn't cling. In the original story, all five of them. Got it. So what we do here is we're really practicing how to have a mind that doesn't cling. That's what we're doing here, that's what we're doing in the rest of our lives. I'm so uh, inspired by the idea that you could just develop your mind. Here's a very short teaching on developing the mind from the Majima Nikaya. Develop a state of mind like the earth, Rahula. For on the earth, people throw clean and unclean things, and the earth is not troubled or repelled or disgusted. And as you grow like the earth, no contacts with pleasant or unpleasant will lay hold of your mind or stick to it. Similarly, you should develop a state of mind that is like water, for people throw all manner of clean and unclean things into water, and it is not troubled or repelled or disgusted, And similarly with fire which burns all things clean and unclean and with air which blows upon them all and with space which is nowhere established. Develop the state of mind of friendliness, Rahula. For as you do so ill will will grow less and develop compassion for thus vexation will grow less and develop joy for thus aversion will grow less and develop equanimity for thus repugnance will grow less." In three paragraphs, that's all of mindfulness instructions and the possibility and metta instructions and the possibility. And I love it that he doesn't say, try to do it or think about doing it. He says, do it. Develop that mind. I, I read that. And I I had a kind of inspired feeling of, I I thought of the Nike ads, the Nike shoe ads that say, just do it, just do it. The feeling I have when someone says, just do it like that, is it's a feasible thing. You could do it. People could do it. We could do it. We could do it. Everybody does it for themselves. Somebody offered me a teaching this week, which I've been thinking about quite a lot. And it's the shift in consciousness from feeling victimized to acting with freedom. She said, we could think of ourselves as having gotten stuck rather than being trapped. We could think of ourselves as surrendering to the truth of experience. Voluntarily, this is the truth. I surrender, I accept it. We could think of ourselves as succumbing, which is to be defeated and victimized. We could think of being coerced, and we could think of choosing. I think in our practice we are moment to moment Choosing peace. Choosing freedom. It's not so easy. We have lots of mind habits to overcome. I sometimes think of the Satipatthana Sutta the Sutta on the Foundations of Mindfulness, as being uh, remedial mindfulness for, uh, especially when I read the the stories in the time of the Buddha, where he just said, "This is what's true," and people woke up. That was it. And uh, because I I, uh, I I I I like to teach, and I think a lot about teaching techniques. I have this fantasy about the, the, the teachings on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. This is completely a fantasy, of course, there's no commentary that I know of that says this. But I think that the Buddha at one time looked around and maybe he talked to one of his assistants and he said, you know, it's interesting, I go from place to place and I tell people what's true and many people, they wake up, they get it right away. And many people, they don't get it right away. And maybe we should have kind of remedial, easier (laughs) way for people to get it. So when I say to people, look, everything passes. (laughs) Clinging is the cause. Clinging, craving is the cause of suffering. There's nothing to cling to anyway. It's all empty. It's all futile, tension in the mind, extra. Some people get it and some people don't. Some people get how one thing causes another thing, causes another thing, but that nothing has any solidity, any permanence in itself. Anything separate about itself. Some people get it, some people don't. He said, I better break it up into smaller learning pieces. That's my fantasy. (laughs) And so, he said, in my fantasy, oh monks, There is the most wonderful way to help living beings realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the right path, and realize nirvana. This is the four establishments of mindfulness. And this is what we've been practicing. Lo these two weeks. And what are those four establishments? Monks, a practitioner remains established in the observation of the body and the body diligent with clear understanding, mindful, having abandoned every craving and every distaste for this life. That means we have sat here, we have brought tremendous diligence to being present in the body, in the breath within the body, pushing nothing away, holding on to nothing, Establishing presence in the moment through the messages of the sensations of the body and the breath within the body. And one remains established in the observation of feelings, in the feelings, diligent, with clear understanding, mindful, having abandoned craving and every distaste, for this life. And so, everybody here had experience after experience after experience after experience that were pleasant and unpleasant and neutral and pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. And the practice throughout, abandoning the need or the desire to have it otherwise, was to stay steady and to stay awake and to say, this is what's true. And you did it. One remains established in the observation of mind and the mind, diligent with clear understanding, mindful having abandoned every craving and every distaste for this life. We paid attention to mind states. What's happening? What's true about what's happening? What's here now? When is it present? When is it gone? One remains established in the observation of the objects of mind in the objects of mind, diligent with clear understanding, mindful having abandoned every craving and every distaste for this life. Just practicing as much as we can to say this is what's true and I am here for it. And this is what's true about what's true. One remains established in the observation of mind and the mind, diligent with clear understanding, mindful having abandoned every craving and every distaste for this life. We paid attention to mind states. What's happening? What's true about what's happening? What's here now? When is it present? When is it gone? One remains established in the observation of the objects of mind in the objects of mind, diligent with clear understanding, mindful having abandoned every craving and every distaste for this life. Just practicing as much as we can to say this is what's true and I am here for it and this is what's true about what's true. And he gives them very explicit instructions, not different from the ones we gave you. One goes to the forest or to the foot of a tree or to an empty room. Here we are. One holds one's body straight and establishes mindfulness. Thinking, breathing in. I'm breathing in a long breath. Breathing out a long breath, one knows I'm breathing out a long breath. Breathing in a short breath, one knows I'm breathing in a short breath. And breathing out a short breath, one knows I am breathing out a short breath. Just what's happening. Moreover, when walking, the practitioner is aware I'm walking. And when standing is aware I'm standing. And when sitting is aware I am sitting. And when lying down is aware I am lying down. When one eats or drinks, chews or savors the food, one applies full awareness to this. When one walks, stands, lies down, sits, sleeps or wakes up, speaks or is silent, one shines one's awareness on all of it. One knows this is a pleasant feeling, this is an unpleasant feeling, this is a neutral feeling. This feeling has changed, now it's this, now it's that. In observing the mind, this is a particular part that I love so much. The practitioner is aware, my mind is desiring or my mind is not desiring. My mind is hating or my mind is not hating. My mind is tense or my mind is not tense. My mind is distracted. My mind is not distracted. My mind is composed. My mind is not composed. It's all just what's true. It's not a problem. It's just what's true. Knowing what's true is the cause of clear seeing into which full understanding arises. I love this last one. One knows my mind is not free or... My mind is free. One knows as well the five hindrances as they arise and pass away. Lust and aversion and torpor and restlessness and doubt. My mind is full of doubt. My mind is empty of doubt. Or lust or aversion or torpor or restlessness. And furthermore, monks, the practitioner remains Established in knowing the seven factors of enlightenment, seven factors of awakening, so that there are moments in which we know, I am filled, my mind is filled with calm, my mind is filled with rapture, or concentration, or equanimity, or energy or investigation. I am mindful. All of those are present. The wonderful thing about the factors of enlightenment is when one recognizes them, one or another or several present in the mind, one after another, arising and passing away, with delight one notices this is present. I can cultivate this. I can sustain it. I can enlarge it. May it increase. May I dwell this way. And when they are not present, we can practice them and say, I think I'll practice concentration. I think I'll practice tranquility. I'll practice equanimity. I'll practice investigation. I will now bring that faculty of investigation that will look so closely at every breath that I will see the very moment of its arising and the very moment of its passing away. I will hold my body with such delight at being here to practice, feeling it all and all the flow of the energy through it, that I will experience rapture in this moment. We can actually determine to bring up all of the factors of enlightenment and practice them right here sitting. I love the fact that although they spontaneously manifest in a person's mind after enlightenment, you don't have to wait until after enlightenment, can actually cultivate these factors. That was so exciting for me to find out to begin with. You don't have to wait. That's what we're doing here, is cultivating those factors. And in the end of uh, that teaching the Buddha said the practitioner becomes aware, becomes established in the observation of the Four Noble Truths, and is then aware this is suffering when it arises, or this is the cause of suffering when that arises, or this is the end of suffering as that arises. And this is the path that leads to the end of suffering, as that understanding arises. And in the very end of the sutta, it says, the monks were delighted to hear the teachings of the Buddha. They took it to heart and began to put it into practice. I know that you are, as well, delighted, and that everyone is practicing with tremendous excitement about it it's a tremendous inspirer of faith for me to live in a practice community as we all are and to hear these teachings over and over and over again i'd like to read to contemporary Presentations of the faith of knowing that this is a path that leads to the end of suffering and to peace. This is a book of photographs of Tibetans in exile. Each of the photographs has an essay, that little essay that goes with it. It's a new book by Stephen Harrison, who's a photographer. And a dharma practitioner. My name is Amma Adi and I am 65 years old. I spent 28 years of my life in eight different Chinese prisons as a political prisoner. My chuba, which is the traditional dress of both Tibetan men and women, became my protection at night in the cold and dampness of my small prison cell. I used my sleeve as a pillow, one side of my chuba as a mattress, and the other side as a blanket, since many of the prisons there in many of the prisons there was no other bedding or blankets. Often when I worked in the prison vegetable garden that fed the Chinese guards, my chuba became the secret hiding place where I would store and conceal food to bring to the other prisoners who were starving. I was caught and severely punished for this on many occasions. The inscription you see on the flag in this photograph is the Dolma prayer. I attribute my survival to the ceaseless repetition of this prayer. When I first was in prison, I tore a strip of cloth from my chuba and tied 108 knots in it to use it as a rosary. It is a tradition for Tibetans to count the number of repetitions of our prayers because it helps us to maintain our attention and concentration. The Chinese guards noticed this knotted cloth and beat me. Then I began to say my prayers out loud in my small cell. The guards waited secretly outside. Whenever they heard the sound of my prayers, they would beat me again. And so I learned to whisper my prayers. When they saw my lips moving, the guards placed duct tape over my mouth. I learned to say my prayers with my fingers and in my mind. When they saw my fingers moving, they beat me and placed duct tape over my fingers to prevent me from counting. And so it was that I learned to pray silently in my mind without making any gestures so that the guards would see nothing at all. I'll read you one more. This is called The Monk Who Sang in Prison. I am Paul Dengyatsu. I spent 33 years of my life in Chinese prisons and labor camps. During the time I was incarcerated, the authorities decided that brutality was the only way to react to our rebelliousness. Guards began to use violence to punish the slightest infringement. But the prisoners were unyielding. They said openly that they would prefer to die, rather than submit to the Chinese. It was a battle of wills. For those who use brute force, there is nothing more insulting than a victim's refusal to acknowledge their power. The human body can bear immeasurable pain and yet recover. Wounds can heal. But once your spirit is broken, everything falls apart. So we did not allow ourselves to feel dejected. We drew strength from our convictions and above all, from our belief that we were fighting for justice and for the freedom of our country. In my prison we used to sing One day the sun will shine through the dark clouds. The vision of the sun dispelling the dark clouds and our unbroken spirits kept us alive. It was not only prisoners who were resilient, so it was it was not only prisoners who were resilient, so were ordinary men and women who live their daily lives in the shadow of the Chinese Communist Party. Even today, young boys and girls who knew nothing of feudal Tibet and who are said to be the sons and daughters of the party are crying out for freedom. Our collective will to resist what is unjust is like a fire that cannot be put out. Looking back, I can see that a person's love of freedom is like a smoldering fire under snow. think that once people understand that freedom is a possibility, the heart can really withstand anything. From the Anguttara Nikaya, just as a capable physician might instantly cure a patient who is in pain and seriously ill, so also, dear friend, Whatever one hears of the Buddha's dharma, be it discourses, mixed prose, explanations, or marvelous statements, one's sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair will vanish. Just as if there were a beautiful pond with pleasant shore, its waters being clear, agreeable, cool, and transparent, and a man came by, scorched and exhausted by heat, fatigued, parched, and thirsty, and he would step into the pond, bathe and drink, and thus all his plight, fatigue, and feverishness are allayed. So also, dear friend, whenever one hears the Buddha's dharma, be it discourses, mixed prose, explanations, or marvelous statements, all one's plight, fatigue, and feverish burning of the heart are allayed." When I first heard Buddha Dharma, I was better before I was better. I was so sustained by the possibility of peace, by the idea that there was a path to the end of suffering. i tell you one more teaching from a contemporary teacher. My good friend and colleague and uh, Meta benefactor Sharon, Sharon Salzberg. When I began my meta practice, Sharon was my teacher, and every day I would come for my interview. And then when I left the interview room, uh, just as I had my uh, hand on the doorknob and I was leaving, she would say, uh, Remember, Sylvia, be happy. And I would say, Thank you very much. And I'd go out and uh, Then all through the day, as I went about doing whatever I was doing, from time to time it would happen to me, as it does with me now and as it does with all of us, find all of a sudden the mind is caught. At that time what I discovered was my mind would get caught in a story, in a feeling, in a this or that. It would go on for a while. And all of a sudden the voice of Sharon would arise in my mind and I would hear it say, remember, Sylvia, be happy. And I think to myself, I'm not happy. And in that moment of clarity, knowing that that's a possibility, I would put that foot down with complete dedication or take that breath with complete presence. When I first heard Sharon say, remember, Sylvia, be happy, I thought it was a kind of an East Coast thing that you said to people when they left, like a, <laughs> a, a salutation, like we say to people, sometimes have a good day. I thought it was like that. I thought it was a salutation. It's not a salutation. It's an instruction. So I would like to say it to you. Remember, dear friend, Be happy. And now I'd like for us to sit.